0: to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Last Sunday morning, the passage that we studied was about why we can trust the Bible. This morning's passage is about why we can't trust all preachers. Now, I told the crowd on Wednesday night that I did not want them to miss hear that. The sermon today is not, why you can't trust preachers. That would be sort of self-defeating, wouldn't it? Instead, our message this morning is why we can't trust all preachers. We can trust all of the Bible, but we can't trust and we shouldn't trust all who preach and teach the Bible, all who talk about God, all who speak in the name of God. All who lead the people of God. We can't even trust all of them that are on television and radio and internet. We can't even trust all of them who write books and sell many books. We can't even trust all of them who appear at conferences. We can't even trust all of them who pastor large churches and run huge ministries. We should be able to trust all preachers. I want you to be able to trust preachers. I want you to respect that office and that position. I want you to think the best of preachers and give preachers and pastors and Bible teachers the benefit of the doubt. I want to be able to do that myself. But we can't, at least we can't blindly. We can't indiscriminately. We can't trust all preachers. This passage tells us why. Beginning in verse 1 of Second Peter 2, it says, "...but false prophets..." also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Did you notice that verse 1 begins with the word, but? That word lets us in on the fact that Peter is to about, about to draw a contrast between what preceded that and what follows it. Now I want you to remember that the entire book or letter of Second Peter is about the knowledge of God. You remember that? We've talked about it now multiple times. Literally, the book begins in chapter 1 with the knowledge of God. And literally, the book ends at the end of chapter 3 with the knowledge of God. All of chapter 1 is dominated by the theme of the knowledge of God. All of chapter 3 is dominated by the theme of the knowledge of God. Chapter 2 is about what opposes that knowledge of God. Remember that the Bible supplies this knowledge of God. And that's what preceded that word bud at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. It was Peter's defense of the Bible. And remember his point is that we can trust the Bible to give us knowledge of God because the Bible is God's Word, not man's Word. Or it's not merely the Word of men. We can trust it, therefore. We can trust all of it. But, there is a contrast between the Word of God the words of God and the words that men and sometimes women say about God's Word. There's a contrast between the words of God and the words that men and women say about God. And you see, that's what follows that word, but there at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. Prior to it was Peter's defense of the Bible. And the contrast, what follows but there at 2, verse 1, is Peter's warning about some of those who preach and teach the Bible. Look at verse 1 again, the first part. It says, "...but false prophets also..." Arose among the people. Listen again. But false prophets also arose among the people. Notice that that's in the past tense. Peter is saying as there were some prophets who were speaking and writing the words of God, which would become for us the words of Scripture, the Bible, there were also other prophets... We were saying things that weren't from God. They were saying their own words. Their words, therefore, were merely the words of men, were completely the words of men. They were saying words of their own interpretation. They were saying words that had been produced by their own wheels. These people were not simply prophets, they were false prophets, right? I think immediately about ten of the twelve spies that God had Moses send into the land of Canaan before Israel, Israel would go in. The person that I think of first in all of the Bible as a false prophet is Balaam. I think of him because not only of his story in the Old Testament, but many of the times that false prophets are brought up in the New Testament, they are lumped into a category with Balaam, as if he's the epitome of false prophets for all time. I also think about many, many other false prophets that are spoken about and exposed throughout the Word of God. Some of them are named, like Balaam, but most of them are unnamed. They're simply looked into a broad category of false prophets. Well, the point that Peter is getting to here in verse 1 is that false prophets, the presence of them isn't something that had passed away. They aren't something who have gone away. Their era has not passed. They're not extinct. You look again to verse 1 and you see Peter making this point, but false prophets also arose among the people in the past just as there will be false teachers among you. So you see, there had been false prophets. But there were false preachers and false teachers. And there are false preachers. And as long as this world remains, there will be false teachers, false preachers. Jesus warned us of that in Matthew twenty four eleven. He said, Many false prophets will arise. Did you hear that? Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Later on in Matthew 24, verse 24, he said, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible. Even the elect. In Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31, when Paul was about to depart from the church at Ephesus and from those elders that he had placed within the church at Ephesus, elders that he loved very much, he said to them in a, in a pastoral way I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Be aware. Be on the lookout. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Just as Jammies and Jambres opposed Moses... So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. I think about the book of Revelation and those letters that Jesus spoke and had written to the seven churches there in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And what I think about is that in the majority of those seven churches that are identified, there was an issue with false teaching. Justin Martyr is a a person that we would identify as a church father. And by church father, what we mean historically is that the era of the church fathers was the era that existed in the history of the church After the apostles had died and after the completion of the New Testament. So Justin Martyr was one of these church fathers. This is in the infancy of the church, the early days of the church. Listen to what Martyr said. Just as there were false prophets contemporaneous with your holy prophets, so are there now many false teachers among us. That's in the early days of the church. And he doesn't just say, hey, there might be a few false teachers. No, he says there are many false teachers among us right now. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 14 sort of sums up false teachers. In the Old Testament, really, I could have had 25 passages from the Old Testament for you this morning on false prophets. But I I picked out one, and it sums up these false teachers. Jeremiah said there, "...the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in My name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying or preaching to you a lying vision, worthless divination." And the deceit of their own minds. This is why we can't trust all preachers. Because unfortunately, some are false preachers. Now, the Bible is true, but not all preachers and teachers of the Bible are true. God is true. But not all who speak about God or in the name of God are true. They are false teachers and preachers. There are false preachers. God in His Word repeatedly tells us this, warns us of this, Because he wants us to be aware of them. And he wants us to be able to identify them. And even to expose them. He wants us then to avoid them and to reject them. To reject their preaching and their teaching. So, how do we identify false teachers? beyond what I've already said, what we've already heard, what is a false preacher? Well, the rest of this passage, and for that matter, the rest of this chapter answers those questions for us. And it does so as it tells us more about why we can't trust all preachers. From... Those three verses that we read a moment ago from this passage, I'll give you three reasons why we can't trust all preachers. Reason number one. We can't trust all preachers because of what some of them preach. We can't trust all preachers because of what some of them preach. And that's what Peter addresses in verse 1. The content of the preaching of false preachers. Look again to verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Master who bought them, brings upon themselves swift destruction. When I say that we can't trust all preachers because of what some of them preach, I mean that some of them preach heresy. That's the word that's used there in verse 1, right? You can't trust all preachers because some preachers preach heresy. And heresy is false teaching. Heresy is wrong doctrine. But it's not just any false teaching. And it's not just doctrinal error in any way. At least I hope not. I don't know of any preacher who goes through their whole career and doesn't say something wrong. I don't know of any preacher, including myself, who goes through a sermon and doesn't say something that at the end of the day might be wrong, or might be a wrong take, or wrong interpretation of a passage, or even a wrong application of a passage. But not all error is heresy. There are going to be a lot of preachers that when we get to heaven are going to find out that whatever we believed about the end time was wrong. Like right, there's so much division on that subject, I just use it as an illustration. Don't you know that many of you and many of us, when we get to heaven, or even when we get to the end of the time, it's not going to turn out like we read in some of those books, or like we taught in some of our classes. And let's just be thankful that our beliefs on the subject of the end do not determine whether we're Christian or not. Amen? You you want to base your assurance of going to heaven and spending eternity with Jesus on your getting it just right on every point of Bible prophecy? You've got a lot of confidence if you do, brothers and sisters, and it is misplaced confidence, let me tell you. Heresy is further identified for us there in verse 1, when it's described as destructive. So you see, heresy is not just any false teaching or being wrong about any doctrine. Heresy is false teaching or wrong doctrine that damns souls, that doom souls. It would be error or falsehood on subjects that one can't be wrong and still be a Christian. In other words, if you get it wrong on on some things, you can still be a Christian, but there are things that are so important that if you get it wrong on them, there's no chance that you're a genuine believer. You've denied the fundamentals of the faith. And so if you have people that preach this, teach this, heresy, not only will their souls be destroyed, but the souls of every person who buys into their lives will be destroyed as well. And I'm not just talking about destroyed in terms of, hey, they won't grow like other believers. I'm talking about they will be destroyed for eternity in hell. Under the wrath of God. Notice how there in verse 1 that it says about those who teach and preach these destructive heresies that they are bringing upon themselves swift destruction. You see that word destruction again? What's the point there? It's that these false preachers will reap what they sow. They've sown destruction, and therefore they will reap destruction. They've sown eternal destruction, and therefore they will reap eternal destruction. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 15 says, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poison water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. You know what God's saying there? Same thing we've just seen in verse 1. They're going to reap what they've sown. They've sown destruction. They will reap destruction from the Lord. Also, I want you to notice there in verse 1 that it says these false preachers or teachers are among you. What does that mean? It means they're in the church. Now, it's true that there are threats to the people of God from outside the church. But down through the years, the far bigger threats to the people of God have always been and continue to be threats from within the church. That's why I talk so much here about these false teachers. They weren't teachers who were teaching something other than in the name of Christianity. Christianity. Muslims, Buddhists, and on and on I could go. They're false teachers, but they're not merely the threat to the people of God that those who preach in the name of Christ are who are false teachers. They are among you. It said there in verse 1, they secretly bring in these destructive heresies. It's not like they get up among the people of God and say, my message for you today is something that's going to doom you to hell forever. Would you like to receive that? Come forward during the invitation. They don't show up at trial sermons and say, you know what? I'm really a false preacher. But I thought you'd want to change a pace. They secretly bring in these destructive heresies. They are crafty, they are cunning, they are subtle. In that way, they are like their father, the serpent about whom the Bible says in Genesis 3, he was more crafty, he was more cunning, he was more tricky, he was more foxy, he was a better schemer than anyone or anything else. These, his offspring, are just like him. Later on in the Bible, it says about Satan and his demons that they masquerade as angels of light. That is, Satan doesn't wreak havoc within the church by asking people to receive himself as Lord and Savior. The real threat to the church isn't that you're going to have a preacher that gets up and preaches the wonderful qualities of Satan. The greatest threat is those who in the name of God and in the name of Christ and in the name of preaching and teaching the Bible get up and teach things about the Bible, about God, about Christ, about salvation, about Christianity that are heretical. Not just an error. But things that are so wrong that the whole balance of Christianity hangs on those things. Verse 1 also said about them that they even deny the Master who bought them. And the Master, there is obviously a reference to Jesus. It means that they even deny Jesus. Do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 10.33 about those who deny Him? If you deny Me, what? I will also deny you. It's saying here about these false preachers that they deny the very one that they professed as Lord and Savior or profess as Lord and Savior. They deny the very one about whom they've been proclaiming. They deny the one that they have identified with and they deny the one that others have identified them with. We're talking here about people that we would look at at some points in their lives, maybe even a lengthy period of time in their lives, and we would say about them, that's a Christian. That's a believer. That's the real deal. They they have the appearance of of a biblical, Christ-like fruit. We have no reason to doubt, at least at these points in their lives, that they're not for the Lord, that they're not speaking rightly on His behalf. But with their heresy, with their false teaching and preaching, they reveal their true colors. They're exposed for what they really are. Jesus Himself said you would know a tree by its fruits. And in that same passage in which He said that, Matthew 7, right before it in verses 15 and 16 of Matthew 7, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Every time I read that, I think about Saturday morning cartoons. Not now, but when I was a boy. And I think about Wiley Coyote. And I think about that little skit that was played out over and over where the sheep are out there, and he's got him some sheepskin, and he's covered up, and he's coming among the sheep. Why? Does he want to be a sheep? No, he wants to eat a sheep. And this at least in some sort of way is a picture of what Jesus is talking about here. There are people who come in among the people of God and they look just like the people of God. And they talk and they sound just like the people of God. And they even walk, they move like the people of God. But at some point, we find out that appearance... It was just a hoax. It was just a cover-up. It wasn't who they really were or who they really are. They really are something different. They're not sheep at all. They're wolves. They're hungry wolves. They're ravenous wolves. Jesus said about these, you will recognize them by their fruits. And the fruit that comes up there in verse 1, by which we recognize them, is denying Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. I'll give you another way to, to read that to understand it. Nobody that's a real deal preacher or teacher of the Word of God is ever going to deny Jesus in his or her preaching. I say her because obviously not here, but in segments of Christianity, that's where some of the false preaching and teaching is going on. So what does it mean they deny Jesus? Well, false preachers deny who Jesus is. That is, false preachers will sometimes deny the deity of Jesus, that He's God, that He's fully God, that He's eternally God. Sometimes they deny the humanity of Jesus. Either of those two things and both of those two things are heresy. Remember what heresy is? Hey, it's not just that we disagree on what women should wear or whether they should wear makeup or not. It's so serious that to be wrong on it is to be outside of the Christian faith. There's no true preacher... We will deny either the deity of Jesus, the full deity of Jesus, or the full humanity of Jesus. And yet, always among the cults, what we would identify as Christian cults, none of them believe in the Bible's Jesus. They all subtract from who Jesus is. Denying Jesus means that in many cases they deny what Jesus has done. So they will deny that Jesus was was sinless. They will deny that Jesus in His death on the cross paid the price for sins. That He took the punishment for sins. Today, we hear a lot of those who are recognized as Christian preachers and teachers... Who will come right out and say, there was no satisfying the wrath of God on the cross? That's mean. That's pagan. They describe the cross in some other way. Again, to deny what Jesus has done is an issue of heresy. Whether you're in or out, has something to do with how you feel about these subjects. I, I want to make clear here, I just thought of something. I'm not saying you have to believe all these things to become a Christian. Well, if that was the case, goodness, I didn't know any of these things when I became a Christian. But I'll tell you what, when I was exposed to them, I didn't reject them. They will deny the resurrection of Jesus. Have you ever heard of Christian preachers or teachers who deny... The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus? If you haven't, you haven't been paying attention. Because there have always been Christian preachers and teachers who do that. By denying Jesus, I mean they deny what He has said. They deny His commands. That was probably a specific issue to the people that Peter was writing to here based on what he says throughout the letter there were obviously a group of false teachers among them who were saying, if you believe in Jesus, you can do whatever you want to because you believe in Jesus. You can live however you want to live. Maybe you've heard it said it's all under the blood. I've heard people say that before. Almost, not almost, justifying their sinful lifestyles. Well, praise God, it's under the blood, even as they're living in public sin. When the Bible says here they deny Jesus, maybe it means that, uh, or at least one of the ways that false teachers and preachers deny Jesus, they deny the exclusivity of Jesus. They will deny that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Specifically, again, here in 2 Peter, one of the issues was false teachers were denying the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. They were therefore then denying our accountability to Jesus. That makes sense, right? If you don't believe that Jesus is coming back, and therefore you don't believe that He will judge people in the future, It makes sense then that you would reject the ethical teachings of Jesus. If we're not going to have to answer for any of it, why would we concern ourselves with doing or not doing any of it? These false preachers, teachers deny Jesus by their words. They deny Him with their heresies, their false preaching. They deny Him by what they preach. The first reason then is we can't trust all preachers because of what some of them preach. And we, like Christ, should deny them. Second reason, reason number two, We can't trust all preachers because of how some of them live. We can't trust all preachers because of how some of them live. Look at verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. When I say that we can't trust all preachers because of how some of them live, what I mean from verse 2 is that some of them live in sensuality. And sensuality here and everywhere else that it's used in the New Testament refers to sexual sin. And I wish that we lived at a time where I could move forward and not have to define what sexual sin is. But if there's ever been a time where sexual sin needs to be clearly defined and repeatedly defined, it's this time. So real quickly, here's a good way to define or elaborate on sexual sin. Sex before marriage is sexual sin. Sex outside of marriage is sexual sin. We might call both of those fornication or promiscuity, or in the second case, sex outside of marriage would be adultery. And in our day, I need to add something further about sex outside of marriage. Sexual sin would also include sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman. And then, of course, you could go into a whole litany of things like pornography and everything else that comes from it. that's a quick identification of sexual sin. Going back to we can't trust all preachers because of how some of them live. Some of them live in sexual sin. And there is and always has been a connection between heresy and sexual immorality. We're going to see that throughout chapter 2. But just to very quickly make the point, I want you to think about the best known cults of our lifetime. All heretical But what's also involved in every one of them? Sexual sin. Awful sexual sin. Unthinkable sexual sin. You could argue it's why the cult got started in the first place. At least one of the main reasons that it got started. I am not, by the way... Saying that having right doctrine and right preaching guarantees that there will be no sexual immorality among those who do it. Unfortunately, that's not the case. And we're reminded of that every week. But there is a greater connection between those preachers of heresy and sexual sin. The book of Jude addresses this subject in verses 17 through 19. It says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Now, what's even worse then the fact that these false preachers live in sexual sin is that they lead others to live in the same way. And that's what Peter has said there in verse 2, when he wrote, and many will follow their sensuality. It's not just that these false teachers and preachers do it, but they lead to and they promote and they even encourage in many cases those under their care, under their teaching, to do the same. And immediately when I read that this week, I thought about the end of Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. It says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. It's not just that they do it, but they delight in other people doing it. And they even in some cases encourage and teach other people to do it as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it speaks about this. I'm sorry, it's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit explicitly says in later times that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And then back to the book of Jude, verse 4. It says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Does that sound familiar? That's parallel language to Second 2 Peter 2.1, right? Secretly have come in. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny Our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Do you see there in Jude 4 it said about them that they pervert grace? They pervert the grace of God? What do you suppose that looks like, that sounds like? What does it mean to pervert the grace of God? I'll give you an example. You're probably familiar with this verse in the Bible, Romans 6.1, where Paul's been talking about grace. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by the law. We're not saved by works. But then he anticipates that some people will misunderstand and falsely teach what he's taught on grace. And so in anticipating uh, the errors that some make and the objections that some have, he says in Romans 6.1, he speaks on their behalf and he... He says of these opponents that they might ask, for should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? If if grace is greater than sin, then why don't we all just sin as much as we can so that God can give the most grace that He can and therefore be the most glorified? What's Paul's response to that line of thinking, by the way? Never... Absolutely not. If you think that way about grace, you think wrongly about grace. People pervert grace and they turn it into cheap grace. They turn believing in Christ into easy believism. Just believe in Jesus. Then you can go out and do what you want to do. Follow your own heart and make yourself happy. Salvation, after all, is only a get-out-of-hell free card. People who pervert grace are those who, over the years, who have subscribed to a theology that many have identified as anti-lordship theology. That is, I received Jesus as my Savior but I might not receive Him as my Lord. I don't want to receive Him as my Lord, because if I have to receive Him as my Lord, hey, that means I have to change. But I want the Savior part, just not the Lord part. Centuries ago, this line of thinking was referred to, this heresy was referred to as antinomianism. That's just a big word for anti-law. People way back there, even during Peter's time, before the the nomians came in or anti-nomians came in, all the way back to Peter's time, there were people who thought that because we're saved by grace, that the law is rendered useless. And that's not the case at all. The law is good. Remember, Paul said that repeatedly in the book of Romans where he taught the most explicitly that we're not saved by the law. The law is good. Listen, grace not only frees us from the penalty of sin, it also frees us from the power of sin, doesn't it? From its dominance over our lives, from our being slaves to it, and... If the grace of God hasn't freed you from the power of sin, then it's very likely that you haven't been freed from the penalty of sin either. Well, the result of this perversion of grace and this perversion of lifestyle is that the way of truth is blasphemed. That means Christianity is spoken ill of. Untrue things are said about Christianity, even untrue things as the result of the way these people live, Untrue things are spoken about Christ. About God. Untrue things are spoken blasphemous things are spoken about the church. About the people of God. I'm talking about things like this. Every time there's an exposed example of sexual immorality among the people of God, or every time there are Christians who treat Christianity as if it's cheap grace and easy, easy believism and they, they think they can live like they want to, the result of that always is talking like this in the world. You see, that Christianity stuff is all three. They're all a bunch of fakes. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. Why would any of us believe in that? Because they all live like we do, and what's worse, they live even worse than what we live. That's what it means here when it says that the way of truth will be blasphemed because of them, that is, because of the people who are living this way. I thought about Romans chapter 2, verse 24, which is a quote of Isaiah 52, five. It says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The name of God is blasphemy. People think less of God. People think nothing of God. People think wrong things about God. They attribute wrong things to God because of the way the people of God live. In this case, people of God who are people of God in name only but they aren't really the people of God. And did you notice here how the destruction that was spoken of in verse 1 has now spread? At first it was the false preachers destroying souls with what they preach, and then it was that ultimately they will be destroyed. Now what it's saying... That the church in many cases experiences the consequences of that destruction. And even in the world there's some destruction going on, because the way of truth is blasphemed, and many who hear it will never therefore believe in the way of truth, which is the only way. You see how the destruction is spread? It's not just false preachers destroying themselves, it's false preachers destroying others. False preachers in many cases destroying even things that are genuinely affiliated and associated with God. So the second reason is we can't trust all preachers because of how some of them live. And so we should reject them just as we reject their lifestyles. Now, I'll wrap it up today like this. We can't trust all preachers, but we can trust God. We can't trust all preachers, but we can trust all that God has said. In His Word, that we call the Bible. And we must trust on Jesus, His Son, if we want to avoid His judgment. You know, it's not just false preachers who are sinners that will experience the judgment and wrath of God. Every one of us, even if we're not a false preacher or teacher, every one of us is still a sinner who apart from Jesus is under the judgment and wrath of God. And one day, apart from Christ, if we remain apart from Christ, we will be subject to the judgment of God for all eternity in hell. The only way to avoid that judgment and wrath of God is through trust in His Son, counting on his Son, depending on who His Son is and what His Son is doing for our salvation. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Jesus has lived a perfect life and died as a sacrifice for sinners on the cross and risen from the grave to conquer death. And He will forgive you of all your sins. And give you eternal life if you will turn from your sins and trust on Him for salvation. If you have not, why not this day? Trust on Jesus and be saved. Would you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes?